Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rulure Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari. I am here in Colorado in my garage. It's cold now. October coldness has hit. Uh, I am not excited. <laughs> I'm staring at my trainer. It's staring back at me. Uh, we have not yet had the moment where we we clash our, our opposing uh, desires. But, uh, you know, I just got back from actually an absolutely beautiful a uh, few days up in Bend, Oregon, where it was sunny and warm uh, and very dusty. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I was up there to test out a new bike from Argonaut Cycles called the GR3. It is their new uh, uh, gravel bike. And so it was a really fun opportunity not only to go up there and see uh, the beautiful scenery of Bend, Oregon, but also the facility where the bikes are actually handmade right here in the United States in Oregon. Uh, and one of the things that I wanted to do while I was there was record this very podcast, but there, we, we were just so busy riding uh, all the incredible terrain and this very fun bike that we just kind of ran out of time. So on the line right now is the gentleman who uh, tore my legs off for the last several days uh, whilst we were riding in Oregon is Ben Farver, the founder of Argonaut Cycles. Ben, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. Yeah, we just saw each other, what, two days ago and uh, did some, some fantastic rides uh, in and around the Bend area. And that's sort of the proving ground for for the design of the the GR3, which we're going to talk about pretty extensively, the the new bike from from Argonaut, and it's got a lot of uh, neat things that's that's that sets it apart from other gravel bikes on the market. So we're going to get to that. But first, Ben, um, I want to talk a little bit about because you know the the ruler audience here is primarily uh, in the UK and Europe, starting to grow here in the US, but they may not understand how exceptionally difficult it is to build a bike in America. Uh, but you're doing that. You're doing handmade bicycles in the United States, uh, and they're beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about the journey that got you there? Uh, you know, you started quite small up there in Bend. Uh, how did you get to the point now where you have a facility where you're actually building bikes here in the U.S.? Uh, it's good. It's a good question. It definitely has been a long journey, and I will try to summarize it by you know we got where we are primarily out of. Uh, necessity and primarily out of the drive to build um, the perfect bike and a more and more perfect and more and more consistent bike. Um, so to do that, uh, as, I, as I kind of 
trying to uh, redundantly pound into everybody's head when you guys were here. I feel like that was a little bit of a broken record. Um, but it's really all about control. Uh, and it's really all about the quality, maintaining quality and, and that quality control. So, you know, being in the industry for a, a good long while now, I've seen some of my peers who've gone down the um, road of having sourced stuff uh, in Asia, which, which you know, I'm the first to admit that the composites coming out of Asia by and large are really, you know, can be really great and really high quality. Um, but there are some pitfalls and shortfalls there, one being, you know, design changes. Say, you know, there's some issue with your bike that you need to design change on. Um, if you're getting orders of 100 or 200 of them, you have to get through that whole quantity before you can, can you know, make that bike better, make it what it needs to be. So there's that kind of painting yourself on a corner aspect. Um, there's also just the, the importation uh, headaches that can happen, you know containers of bikes getting stuck on on boats sitting off the coast of the longboard and you can't really do anything um, but twiddle your fingers and pull your hair out while you're trying to wait for it to get, get uh, unloaded on the docks by the longshoremen um, to then also, you know, just the supply chain issues that we've all seen over the last couple of years. So, you know, it's, it's control, it's accessibility, you know, and then going down to the QC side, um, Having the experience that I've had in the composite industry, I have a super, super high expectation of level of quality on composites in terms of, you know, the internal structure, the control over the layout pattern, um, the finished, the finishability of the part due to its quality. Essentially, you know, composites are, are really uh, a garbage in, garbage out, garbage out scenario because if you start with a bad part, it's just an absolute nightmare to finish, you know, it just takes more work to make it look nice. So, um, that's absolutely a big part of it. And then also, um, driving towards our, our need for control over ride quality and to get control over ride quality, you have to be able to control really precisely your layout pattern and develop, um, and iterate upon your layout patterns to get a really specific, uh, handling and, and ride quality of the bike. So that's it. These are all the sort of necessity parts from an engineering side. So it's you know it's quality control. It's needing to to be able to iterate and develop a layout pattern to get a specific ride quality. And then it's also the biggest part too is the customization part. So every bike that we make is custom, and that's just not possible any other way than making it in house. So everything, all of the the um, capacity we've driven, all of the engineering capabilities we have, is essentially just you know been built up and, and grown upon to get, make better and better parts and get better and better consistent quality, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's worth noting, I mean, having just been in the facility a couple of days ago, I, I think it's easy to, as a consumer, to just imagine these, these facilities as machines humming along and pumping out frames, you know, <laughs> just spitting them out. But really what's striking about your facility is that a lot of almost all the every step of the way there's there's hands on, right? There's there's people making parts, uh, laying carbon by hand. Uh, even the testing facility you have in house, there's somebody there, uh, you know, doing the the testing, uh, the quality control testing in house, right there in front of you. Uh, so there is a phenomenal amount of control that you have to be able to just make changes quickly. Um, 
that iterative sort of design capability, um, do you think that's a function of having to have started small like you did and, and you know, knowing how important it is to be able to pivot quickly when it comes to, uh, you know, a, a complex process like this? Absolutely. I think that that's kind of in sort of my DNA from a design aspect. When I first started making carbon bikes back in you know, 2010 or so, uh, working with our other supplier, I, for some reason, I refused to give the bike model a name um, in terms of a model name, you know, it was just the Argonaut road bike. And my rationale for that was that we changed it and improved it too quickly to give it a model name because we just have to come out with a new model every six months. So, you know, it was basically that we, we worked on the adage of, you know, the bike that you're getting is the best possible bike we can make at any time. And we're not going to wait another you know, eight, nine months design cycle, year over calendar cycle to make improvements that we want to on the bike. We're just going to do them as we see them because there's kind of no reason not to. So um, it is it is just kind of built into the way my approach to designing bikes. And it also is our approach in terms of custom layup process because, you know, we have to iterate. We're forced to because we'll get riders that come along that need um, a totally kind of ground up from scratch layout pattern. So that is, you know, that's, that's another iteration of it in and of itself. Um, you know, one of the things that was very striking to me as somebody who has been to many carbon manufacturing facilities at this point, you know, I've, I've been, I've been fortunate to have gone to many of them, uh, in, you know, most people haven't. They haven't seen this for the first time, but I have. So there's a lot of things in common, right? There's a big roll of carbon. There's, you know, the cutting process and all that. And some some manufacturers are doing molds. Some are doing hand layups. Some are doing a combination of both. What I found striking was that you at Argonaut uh, had found a different way to lay up your carbon uh, to eliminate lower quality finished products. And, you know, a lot of the times when, you know, with bladder uh, carbon layups, you get leftovers inside the middle of the tube and you can have voids and you can have, um, you know, different threads might get distorted. Um, you found a way around that. Can you talk a little bit about that without giving away too much of your proprietary information? Again, going back to my, my, uh, previous relationship with my, when we were getting our products domestically sourced, sorry for the ding there, my expectation and, and the bar that was set for the quality of our components was extremely high. So when we brought everything in-house to do it all here in our Bend, Oregon facility, um, what we needed to turn out had to be better than what we were getting from before from our previous provider, which was up in Washington. So that was one. And then two, uh, it was really important for us to be as vertically integrated as possible because I saw some real shortcomings in their process in terms of relying on a bladder manufacturer. So with with latex bladders, which is a great way to make composite parts, you still uh, oftentimes rely on uh, another third party to make your bladders for you. So that's one, it's a, it's a delay in terms of um, timing. Uh, it's a QC issue because a lot of times you can get bad bladders and you don't know they're bad until you start to lay up parts and then they explode inside the mold and then it's just a whole mess. Um, and then three, it's, it's a lack of customization essentially. So the more vertically integrated we are, the better we are, we able to, to control our quality and the better able we are to, um, minimize, uh, or sorry, the better able we are to make the bikes more custom 
essentially. So that's what led me down the road to what's called tracked rubber molding style molding. Um, and our specific process is called high pressure silicone molding. So rather than laying up on a, back, a bag inside the mold or around a latex bladder, we 3D print um, a mold that we then inject silicone into and cure. And out of that mold comes our layup bladder. Um, I'm sorry, not layup bladder, uh, our layup mandrel. So your mandrel is the physical piece that you lay the carbon onto um, that controls the surface until you put it inside the mold. And then that also needs to create interior pressure, expansive pressure to fuse the layers of carbon together. So what I really love about trapped rubber style molding is that one, you can make your own mandrels. Two, you get extremely high interior mold pressures. So that the um, when heated in an oven, the silicone expands um, and creates an internal um, pounds per square inch upwards of like 600 psi. So that's about 3x what you're going to get with any bladder. Um, any style of bladder. So your void content is, is virtually zero. So the quality of your part is outstanding. The surface finish of the part is outstanding. Um, and also the most important thing is that you get uh, basically no fiber wander. So if you picture a, a shrunken down you know, bladder, anything that you wrap carbon on, as that expands, it's grabbing fibers and pulling them in all different directions. Um, with our system, uh, you're basically laying the part up net in its final shape. So those fibers, where you lay them down, um, they stay exactly there into the finished part, which means that your layup schedule in terms of the angle bias that the individual layers of carbon lay on top of each other stays consistent and stays where you're, where you intend to put it. And therefore you get, um, your intended mechanical properties out of the part. So, that repeatability and that reliability of all the engineering you put into your layout pattern coming out of the finished part um, is super, super satisfying, essentially, for a type A sort of engineering dork. That's that's an interesting point because that was something I hadn't heard uh, spoken about at other facilities was the the, the uh, individual fibers wandering. And that makes a lot of sense because, you know, the, we, we go through all of this very um, painstaking processes to lay the carbon and get that, uh, customized, uh, movement or, or another way or reinforcement or whatever it is you're trying to do with those fibers only to have it move when you actually do the mold, that just seems counterproductive. So you found a way around that. And that's really neat. And from a practical sense, for those of you listening, what that looks like is, is, uh, in the Argonaut facility, there are several people, sitting at stations, literally laying carbon around the, the mandrels uh, by hand in exactly the layup that is intended for it. And then it goes into the next step, which is to go into the, the mold itself and get uh, you know heated. But it's really, this is a very labor intensive thing. Uh, you're not looking for quick, you're looking for absolutely correct, right? Exactly. So you know that, that again is, is a nod to when we think about what carbon can do, you know, yes, carbon can be an incredibly tailorable and, and uh, you know, fixable material if you do it right. But if it's more of a slap it together, I mean, you're looking at voids, you're looking at a very sloppy internal uh, section of the tube. Argonaut doesn't have any of that. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's about efficient use of material, 
right? So you can you can be sloppy with your layup. You can basically just kind of throw more carbon at it that you need, knowing that your margin for you know you're you're overstepping your margin for error essentially. But if you want to um, really specifically control the flex characteristics of the individual part, as well as be really efficient with your material in terms of not needing material where you where you don't need it for strength or stiffness. Um, allows you to decrease weights and have a lighter frame overall. Um, that's you know that's the payoff in being able to control your layup pattern um, so to such a finite degree. Yeah, and we can talk more about. I mean, we could talk endlessly about all the things that are going on in your facility from paint, which is done in-house, uh, to all the hand finishing. I mean, there's just an immense amount of care that goes into these frames. But uh, in the, for the sake of time, I, I do want to talk about the actual bike, the GR3. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and then when we come back, we're going to talk specifically about the GR3, the new uh, gravel bike from Argonaut, what sets it apart from others on the market, uh, and what my experience was like riding with you guys up in uh, Bend. And I'll all I'll tell you before the break is that I'm very tired after <laughs> after some big rides. We'll be back in just a second. If you're enjoying this podcast, get yourself to ruler.cc and subscribe to the magazine. Beautiful photographs and design and the best cycling writing around. And while you're there, check out Ruler Live in London from the 3rd to the 5th of November. Featuring the world's best brands and on-stage guests, including Tom Bonin and Fabian Cancellara, Demi Vollering, Fred Wright, Kasia Niwadoma, Lachlan Morton, Kelsey Mitchell, Ed Clancy, and many more. Tickets on sale now at ruler.cc. We are back with the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. I am still your host, Dan Cavallari. I am still in my garage in Colorado. I am still just fresh off a trip to Bend, Oregon to visit Argonauts facility uh, and, and meet all the wonderful people who are making Argonauts bikes, among them Ben Farver, the founder of the company, who is joining me right now. Ben, we, we just spent uh, several days uh, riding around on the GR3 in Bend, uh, I was I was living up to my moniker, slow guy in the fast ride. I was the guy way in the back of the group. <laughs> that was a, it was some stout riding. It was a lot of fun, and the bike itself has a lot of interesting uh, features that really set it apart from other bikes on the market. Can you talk a little bit about the design philosophy of the GR3 and why you made the choices you made in terms of geometry and uh, and handling? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, it was great having you out here. It's super fun to ride with you. It was. Smiles, smiles all day for sure, and uh, a little bit of proper amount of suffering in there too. <laughs> it was a good combo. Can't not have that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good. So you know, I kind of right. I think the most unique thing about the GR3, and what I'm most excited about, is the uh, the geometry of the bike as it applies to how the bike uh, handles and rides. So I want to separate two things about geometry really quickly for listeners. So there's geometry, frame geometry as it applies to how the bike fits. Um, and then there's frame geometry to how the bike uh, handles. So every uh, GR3 is made to order for the individual customer. And we sort of approach fit and, and um, geometry handling relatively independently of each other. So I'm gonna focus on um, geometry as it applies to how the bike handles. So the, the impetus and the motivation for me to design this bike was, was personally um, primarily focused on my experience of our previous generation gravel bike, the GR2, 
uh, on a five-day gravel race that was, I did here in 2000, I think it was 18, called the Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder. It was a five. It was a really fun event, um, but it basically started and ended in Sisters, Oregon, um, and ba- and bounced all over the Cascade Range and a bunch of really cool gravel roads that I had never ridden. So, on that ride. You know, it was sort of like a constant mental list of what my bike that I made was doing well and, and not doing well. Um, and I got home really wanting to design and, and make a new bike, essentially. So the, the, the inspiration for the design of the GR3, if you, you know, is really simply put is sort of racing your bike in around the Cascade range of of the Pacific Northwest. So our roads are, um, can be really pretty kind of nice gravel, like that Colorado Champagne gravel that you get. That is not the norm. It's mostly more rough um, and sharp, big volcanic rocks and long, twisty, hairy descents. Um, so it needs a bike that is really capable. But me being sort of a, a roadie and a more of a lover of bikes that go really fast, I didn't want to uh, compromise the the acceleration and the liveliness of the bike. So this is this is our goal with the GR3, and I feel like what we accomplished really well is a bike that descends really well um, and is really stable for ultra fast descents. Because any any gravel race around here, oftentimes you know if you're competing, you're going to get with a group that is going uphill. Um, and then when you crest the hill and start going down, a lot of times that's when people can get gapped off and separated if they don't have the proper bike in terms of the amount of tire that they can clear or, um, the geometry of the bike is understable where you're just not able to descend aggressively enough to, to stay on. Um, so that's, that's the front end of the GR3 has a really unique, uh, in the industry, 68 and a half degree head tube angle that um was difficult to make uh steer correctly because it's so slack so that's why we also came up with the um our own fork design with a 57 mil- 57 millimeter rake excuse me um, and the combination of those two make a really stable front end to be able to just you know fly down super bumpy double track um, but then also have pretty responsive steering, whereas the risk is of having a really slack front end is the front end either wants to wander or it feels super heavy and sluggish, like you're, like you're driving a tractor, essentially. So it's really important to get the combination of fork rake and head tube angle correct so that um, the bike still, still steers properly. Uh, and then, you know, back up to the, to the rear end of the bike, which is really kind of where the most engineering hurdles come through, so we have an industry shortest 415 millimeter chainstay length, um, which is really important to make the bike feel fast and lively and accelerate quickly. So tucking that rear wheel in under the rider um, is really excellent for power transfer. It's really it makes the bike climb exceedingly well and respond exceedingly well. Um, and co- contrary to sort of common bike knowledge, you don't need a long chainstay. Uh, to make a bike stable. That mostly comes with the, from the front end geometry. So that's the really unique aspect of the GR3 that you won't find in any other geometry out there on any other bike. Um, and that's why, you know, it's important for me too, to not simply, you know, add another gravel bike to the long list of gravel bikes that have 
you know, that are basically the same bike. You know, if we're going to make a bike, it's got to contribute something um, to that category and and add to the overall narrative of what that bike is and should be, um, which is just kind of how, how we want to participate in the industry overall. You know, we're, we want to be leaders. We want to be innovators. We don't want to just make a bike for the sake of making a bike. Sure, sure. And it's interesting to me that, you know, Bend, Bend has long been a destination for mountain bikers. Uh, and I think that's an interesting thing to note because I, I feel like we, we look at a gravel bike and it looks a lot like a road bike, but it's actually borrowing a lot more technology and, and theories from the mountain bike side uh, in, in terms of its design. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like where where is the middle ground between the road world and the mountain bike world? Is it gravel or is it something else? Um, and and what, if, not, if it's not gravel, what makes gravel different? It's probably, you could probably carry some analogies to how um, segmented the mountain bike market has gotten over the years. And I'm not sure, I think it's likely that moving forward, you know, the gravel, the gravel bike design will segment in equally kind of interesting terms because it used to be, you know, mountain bikes either had a full suspension or they were all cross country bikes, right? They were like, you had a full suspension or a hardtail and they're pretty steep angles all around and then as people push the limits on the terrain they were riding and the style riding and the style of dirt then mountain bike design just sort of exploded um and really started kind of pressing the making interesting and more creative geometry um choices bike designers did and i think that that's starting to happen with gravel bikes too so sorry to not um wander off in different areas and try to focus on your question. I, I personally, from design, I look more to mountain bike design for our gravel bike than I did to road. I think that a, a solid, you know, go fast, um, lively, exciting road bike has a really different geometry than uh, a gravel bike. And I think that it should, because I think it needs to do a very different mm-hmm. job. So, you know, gravel in in itself is still, I mean, it, it's weird to say it, but it's still a pretty nascent, uh, segment, you know, it's some, it's still in its infancy really, you know, on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's, you know, it's been around forever. So there is precedent for what, you know, you're doing. And I think Argonaut is trying to do what's always been done, but do it better, uh, and, and make it more of a fun ride. And, and I think that's really the, the takeaway here. Right. And that was my experience with the bike in general was, you know, I've ridden a lot of gravel bikes and a lot of times you get on a gravel bike and, and it goes forward and it rolls over stuff and that's all you really needed to do. But what, what I found remarkable about the GR3 was that uh, the handling is, is, is so different. I, my first impression was, ooh, this is like ultra responsive racy. But then I was like, wait a minute, I'm a lot, I can like steamroll over stuff. I don't have to cherry pick a line. You know, it's, it's got this weird balance of, of stable and responsive. Um, and, and I think one of the things that really enlightened me was when you stopped with us at one point and said, you know, it steers a lot like a mountain bike. There's some counter steer that you have to do. Uh, or you, you can do to make it really stick in corners. And after you said that, it changed the way I thought about the way the bike handled. I was able to throw it around more. Uh, I was re- I was more confident in corners, even when we switched out tires to something lower profile in the very deep dust of, of bend. Um, and so that, that counter steer, can you explain that just briefly what you meant by that? Like, you know, you said, hey, you know, try to counter steer it like you would a mountain bike. Ta- talk a little bit about that. What does that mean? 
historically, gravel bikes have been made more similar to a cross bike, and cross bikes have a more stand-up, steeper head-tube angle too, um, and a lot of times are ridden in a, in a fashion that where they're sort of driven around tight turns. So if, if you're in an off-camber section and you're trying to get around a tight chicane or, or through some some you know rope zigzag things, you're 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 turning the handlebars the direction that you want to um, steer the bike, essentially. That, in any sort of a higher speed or bike control aspect, that's really not what you want to do, and I think is is something that some cyclists are, are kind of missing out on in terms of um, how to really handle their bike. So counter-steering is when you're going into a turn, you're actually pushing um, the opposite uh, side of the handlebar away from you to dive the bike down that you know the other direction you're sort of like you're you're tipping the bike over so you're you're driving the handlebar you know you're steering the opposite direction counter steering to tip the bike over first to initiate that turn to lay the bike over and then put your weight over on that side of the bike as well to increase traction and then kind of drive through the corner and that's how um, you ride a motorcycle, really, and then that's also how you properly ride a motorbike through to to have the most traction under the wheels to maintain um, and go faster through corners, essentially. So, you know, centering your weight between the axles, um, leaning, which again, honestly, kind of takes some leaning back, and then counter steering through that turn to dive the bike over to get it on its side um, to increase traction. It, you know, it's so much more fun and you can ride through corners so much faster. Um, and we found that, you know, with this geometry really lends itself to that style of handling and riding more akin to a mountain bike. So, so yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. I'm glad you were able to figure, figure that out and feel that in the bike. Um, I don't know. What do you, I, I don't know if I explained counter steering very well. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's more of a, you know, it's not a point and go situation with with which is something you can do with cross bikes and with road bikes it's, it's almost i don't want to say it's a lazy way to steer but it's an easy way to steer um but you get more traction and you get more control and you're able to really um strike a strike a, a relationship with your bike if you're if you're willing to to put a little bit more effort into it and, and do the counter steering part of it which is you know the hand you you, you turn the handlebar but you're also maneuvering it uh, you know, with, with both hands, with, with your body weight. Uh, and that to me was a real turning point with, for me, with the relationship to the bike was, I was just more comfortable on it. I was, uh, more able to, to tackle trickier sections. Uh, it, it just became a totally different beast and I could really feel a lot of the advantages of, of the bike at that point. And I think that's something that, you know, you could translate into testing any bike with, right? Like, can you counter steer it? Can you really stick it in corners like that? And is the bike designed for that? And I think that's a, a real good sign of a, a bike that's well built and, and well, and even if it's not well built, it's well thought out. You know, I think it's, it's the intention of gravel is to be able to tackle as many different types of terrain as possible which is a huge order to fill. And so if you're able to do those sorts of things with the geometry to make it the best tool possible for all of those different situations, I think that's a big win. And I think the GR3 does that. Um, that might be a long way of saying, yes, I think you explained it well, Ben. <laughs> and one, one, you know, one other thing I want to add there in terms of geometry is back to talking about domestic manufacturing and iterative process. We definitely took some... Um, 
risks in terms of geometry of the Giro 3. You know, we, we designed this bike and nobody had ever ridden it. Um, so we didn't know if it was going to work really. And, you know, when you're looking at it on paper, that 68 and a half degree head tube angle is really slack relative to everything else. Um, and the, you know, just how the bike sits is a little bit, you know, awkward because it's so different and so new. Um, so, but we, you know, we felt we were okay with building it and trying it, knowing that we could rel- change it um, and improve it relatively quickly if we had to. And I think that if you're ordering, you know, setting an order of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bikes and you don't have that um, ability to be creative, I think that it's, you're more likely to stick to a, a more, you know, recent formula for what makes a bike handle rather than kind of get outside the box, um, which I feel like we did, which really, really paid off. So not to, not to segue um, away from what you want to talk about, but that's one of the parts of the build process and design process that we're able to do that um, was really cool for me. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, thanks. Thanks for, uh, for all this explanation. We could probably talk all day about the geometry of this and how it handles and, and all the, the, and really all the fun we had in, in Ben, that was really the best part, <laughs> but, uh, we are just about out of time. Uh, so for those of you listening, if you have questions about, uh, the GR three or anything we spoke about today in the podcast, you can of course reach out to me, uh, directly on Twitter. I'm at slow guy fast ride on the Instagram. I'm slow guy on the fast ride. You can of course reach out at Rulure magazine on all social media um, ben, where can the folks find you uh, and Argonaut Cycles? So we are at ArgonautCycles.com is our website. Also at Argonaut Cycles on Instagram and uh, Facebook. And uh, reach out to me directly if you, if you send an email to contact at ArgonautCycles.com. That goes right to me. So I'm happy to answer any questions and uh, expand on my blatherings about all things geometry and gravel riding. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would encourage you all to check out ArgonautCycles.com because there's lots of information about some of the really unique things that, that Argonaut is doing. It's very cool to see. I wish you could all see it in person like I got to, but the website is a, is a close second. Uh, ben, thanks again for joining me today. I do appreciate it. And thanks for uh, hosting me in a, a wonderful series of rides up in Bend. Uh, and hopefully we'll get to ride again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Dan. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And to those of you listening, thank you for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Relore Magazine Tech Podcast. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.